Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, it's Lady. Hi, we're here. I'm Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work, our weekly podcast about, well, work. We missed you. Thanks for bearing with us while we did other kinds of work. What do you mean we missed work. you? Oh, right. God, it's been, like, I feel like the Met Gala was so much, and then it also feels like it was so long ago. The Met Gala was all the things, yes. Yeah. And it's been a constant juggernaut of, of things since then and yeah. in between then. Yeah, it's been busy. It's amazing, though, like, obviously when you're working all night and you're writing the Met Gala and you're like, oh, my God, like, we left this person off our list. We've got to add this dress on. Um, Of course, in the moment, it's like, fuck. But the Met Gala is fun. Like, I found it more fun to write about this year than the Oscars. Jessica and I talked about that. It is fun. It's fun to... Because you don't know where you're going to land. The thing is, the Oscars, you're so tired. You've seen all the people so many times, and they've been rehearsing every look and soundbite and whatever for the last six weeks, eight weeks. It's This is just like a one-night, I don't know, key party. It's yeah. exciting. With, and also without much like, you know, you could get by on the Met Gala on the pictures. Whereas like with the other shows or with the other major fashion events, you might need to watch the red carpet show, right? You need to know what those moments are. And then you have to watch the actual show. And then there's the fucking after party and what they say at John El- like Elton John's party and this and that and the other. No, you're right. The carpet is the whole thing. And when we say that, it's just the picture because there is no, there's no quotes. They no. don't even bother. Back a million years ago when I covered the Met Gala, they would actually, some of them, stop and talk to the press that were on the stairs. Now they don't even bother. No, back like when a million years ago when I started covering the Met Gala and I was there I think two or three years in a row, they had already stopped talking. Mm -hmm. So you really just go for the B-roll and to hope that someone talks to you or even better hope you ask to talk to somebody and get rejected, which is what happened to me and Lara and Anna Wintour. Right, which is amazing as you have explained. Yes, for sure. But you know what I was thinking is we know that so many people and so many, like, Hollywood stars have this massive social anxiety, right? This is sort of a, an occupational hazard slash a yes. run on Xanax. Who do you think doesn't go? Who's like, I have to put on, like, four elastic bands and a camp tent, <laughs> and I have to then be ridiculed and stand next to Katy Perry and not make eye contact through her tinfoil hat. Who skips that? Well, I can tell you that there's someone who used to go and who has just skipped out not just on the Met Gala, but on everything. Mm-hmm. Cameron Diaz. Right. Do you remember she wore a green earring that you were in love with one year? Oh, yeah. And she was a pretty regular Met Gala attendee. And in the last, what, three, four years, Cameron Diaz has essentially said, I need a break from everything. I'm married. I'm done. And now it's like 
you know, I feel like I miss we, – we used to look forward to watching Cameron Diaz on any red carpet. Well, she used to really enjoy herself, right? Yeah. She used to be one of those people who would show up without a lot at stake. So she showed up just to look awesome yeah. and be awesome. And that is a great person to have around, the person who metaphorically yeah. has come to party. Um, yeah, she doesn't come anymore. I associate Cameron Diaz with you because Cameron Diaz is always the one for bold jewelry, which you are as well. You are wearing quite a bold necklace. Well, you wouldn't consider it bold, but I would. I wouldn't. I find yeah. it like I'm like, oh, I thought this was so, yeah. For me, that is a bold necklace. But Cameron Diaz would do like the turquoise, the topaz, the whatever earring. And you would like, I always associate that because you'd be like, finally, somebody with accessories that is like not just, you know, Lorraine Schwartz and boring and diamonds. We'll put up a picture of my outlandish necklace and see what you think. <laughs> Now I'm Googling, uh, trying to Google quietly off the mic to find that event where she wore that great, like, red and white dress that I love that had, like, flowers kind of oh, marching on it. I know, I know, no, it was really fresh. It was like at an yeah. MTV Awards or yeah, something yeah, yeah. ridiculous. So. It was, but it was also cut on the, like, diagonal, one yeah. shoulder or something it like that. It was like an off-the-shoulder but skewed, yeah. yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to tilt like I'm a little teapot, trying to show you guys what yeah. this dress looks like. Isn't that amazing, though, like, that certain images, fashion images, we associate, like you are bringing up, you know, a fashion moment for Cameron Diaz that both of us remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like Lively says, it, you know, let's not ask about it. Let's not talk about it. <laughs> I had to get that in there. Sorry. I had to get that in there. Anyway, yeah. So Cameron Diaz would be an example of someone who's abstained. Abstained. Yeah. She does not go out anymore. You're right. And then, and likewise, there was a period of a good years there where we never saw Claire Danes. Claire Danes had ceased to exist. Now Claire Danes comes to everything. Yes. And it's not just because she's in Homeland. She just has decided she likes going out again. Okay, but controversial question. Did she not go out because of the Billy Crudup thing? Yes. That's not controversial. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, And also because uh, now she has a kid and wants to get out of the house. That's my diagnosis. Ah, see, I wouldn't go there. I'd go for cheating first. and <laughs> Well, that too. Yes, absolutely she hid because of that, even though she came out of that unscathed, right? Yep. Like, utterly unscathed. You and I are the only people who remember. So shall we? Yeah, let's start the show. We had some pretty great content this week. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the first story involves one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Well, like... D- Yes, and uh, it's such a it's it's such a weird story, right? Because it's a non-story. Should we say his name? <laughs> well, you all know his name. <laughs> this I, is uh, Brad Pitt's GQ. Oh, I thought you were going to catch your snap, and we were going to do the boy is mine. You know? <laughs> oh, uh, I I did I missed that. Sorry. I actually made that up only after the fact. I <laughs> okay. heard that I'd said that. Brad Pitt's interview in GQ, which I think was it Tuesday morning. It dropped. At a time when we were available to drop everything and read it. Yeah. Wednesday. It was Wednesday. Mm -hmm. It was right after our Met Gala hangover. Um, And yeah, it came out, as you said, Wednesday morning. It was one of those like 8.45, 9 a.m. drops. And we, I think we read it at the same time because we messaged each other at the same time. Absolutely. Yes. And I will say that I can actually remember your text verbatim. Well, because I loved it. (laughs) Of course, it was, I remember it because I found it flattering. And it was, you wrote to me, I mean, dot, 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 you called it. 
Absolutely. And of course, what I meant was you called, we had almost a test balloon for what has become this podcast back in November when the news of the split first dropped. And I asked about... Was that September? Was it September? It was. <gasps> September 21st, 2016 at 1029. <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked you, I can't. can't. <laughs> Joanna's losing her mind because um, our sound engineer uh, <laughs> slash producer Yasik is currently at the recording studio, aka my dining table, um, essentially making out with our dog. Like this is a <laughs> word I don't use very often, but they're Frenching. <laughs> yes. Um, let's yeah. get back to the uh, the topic at hand. Uh, I asked. Who do you think would get her first post-divorce sit-down, little tears, sparkly-eyed interview? Who did I say? I think, I don't know if we came down on somebody. Oprah is probably what you said. But you said, he's going to get the interview. Yeah. And here it is. It is in print form, which is safer than TV anyway. Yeah. But the interview the interview, the post-divorce, I will hide nothing. I will lie in the sand and writhe mournfully. I don't know, man. I, okay. What was the first thing that struck you? Um, well, the first thing that struck me was the pictures. Mm-hmm. Some people are laughing at the pictures, you yeah. know, <laughs> and I, you know, and to the people who are laughing at the pictures, I get it. Like, you know, they're making fun of the pictures um, in terms of the persona he's playing. You know, loneliness and wilderness and man versus nature. I am laughing whatever. at a picture wherein undershirt clad Brad Pitt is uh, falling into sand in a spotlight while a storm brews behind him. And he just looks like Jason Priestley. Like, he looks like... <laughs> I don't know what, there's red pants happening, like his mom bought them at Sears. These are ridiculous pictures. He's like stumbling or fumbling or rolling down a sand dune or something like that, because there's a couple of them. Yeah, there's that one that you're referring to, and then right below it, there's another one in the same series. You know on a Disney show where somebody gets punched, but you don't actually see the punch, and then you hear the real like, and then somebody off camera goes like, oh. Yes. It's like play acting that they got punched in a yes. Disney show. Now, that's one reaction to the photos. The other reaction to the photos is, you know, from a tweet that I got from a reader called Angela who said that all the women in her office were melting. That, you know, they're looking at these photos. They're looking at his expression. There's one with tears coming out of his eyes, or at least his eyes are brimming with tears, reading, you know, his words, <laughs> his perceived generous words about his uh, ex-wife, and they're melting. So 100%, I can see why some people are laughing, but I think we both have to acknowledge that a lot of people are actually melting. Well, pictures are no pictures. The point of this piece with pictures and article included is melting, right? I would be more inclined to, to have a slightly softer heart if he weren't topless with, like, <laughs> an Irish vest on top. Uh, I would be more inclined to have a soft heart if he weren't, like, topless with my Irish uncle's vest on top. Right. But 
you know, this whole point of this whole endeavor is to get you to feel tender towards him. That's a good, I hate that word, but it is that, is the emotion. Yes, tender, for Pro- sure. Yeah, protective. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's hard to talk about this in an objective way because I think you and I both feel that this was calculated, let's say. Yes? Correct. Calculated. <laughs> yes. Calculated and certainly it, by, you know, when we say calculated, we mean by design. So this is, um, even from the opening beats of the interview, Brad Pitt is making matcha tea. Are you fucking kidding me? Um, so, you know, the writer talks about how he's in this beautiful space. It's a compound. Minute details about the architecture and the, I don't know, whatever you call it, the interior design are provided to us. But here's Brad Pitt, one of the most elusive and famous movie stars of the last 30 years, making matcha tea and talking about how it therapeutic is, it is. That's our introduction in this article. Which, again, we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks. That's skillful writing. You could start the piece anywhere, but you start it with Brad Pitt making matcha tea, the most, like, that's like a, a, a dog whistle for I'm sensitive. Uh, you know, it's right up there and up front. This is going to be a different Brad Pitt. <laughs> yes. Thank you for the voice modulation. I just, I don't know. I But I, you know, at the same time, I think I would have opened on that too. So as you say, like, it is a masterful stroke of hooking when you're writing. I I read that sentence and, you know, while I think, give me a fucking break, matcha tea, I was like, okay, (laughs) if we're starting on matcha tea, where else are you taking us, right? Well, funny story, there was a quote where I actually thought we were done because it was such a perfect ending quote. Uh, And... You know, it's actually relatively near the beginning. And he talks about how uh, I get up every morning and I make a fire. When I go to bed, I make a fire just because it makes me feel life. I just feel life in this house. You could end your piece right there. You could send that to your editor and the little GQ logo at the end. And he'd be like, good for you. And that's a fucking eye roll. And at the same time, it's not to be too on the nose about it, fire and melting, but that would have induced some melting. Yeah, I just need to feel life in this house. I just, like, I come on. Like, it is, later on, they... they. Oh, P.S., bef- like, right before the fire quote and him throwing logs in the fire or whatever is, like, a little anecdote about the dog. Well, that's what I was going to say. They talk later on in the article about it being Sisyphean, you know? Yeah. Uh, just sort of the endless, endless pain. And they just pile it on in this interview. Oh, his kids aren't here. The toys out back are not played with. The dog is here. He loves the dog. There's even a point later on where he nuzzles the dog, not (laughs) unlike our sound engineer and producer, and like interrupts his own bearing soul interview to make out with his bulldog. It's, It's almost algebraic in the formula that is made to make you care about him. But formulas are around for a reason. So good work or bad work. Well, here's the funny thing, though, that we've been talking about for some time. And again, you called this. I don't know when this interview was arranged. I don't know. You know, print has long lead times. So 
I'm not sure when this interview would have taken place exactly. Yep. But I almost feel like he doesn't need this. This is image reparation that you could understand why it would have been arranged. You could understand why it was set up. But I don't think he needs it. He's not actually in as bad a place as this article entails. Conversely, the Ben Affleck articles that should have been like this have never come anywhere close to this level of sanitation. But Brad Pitt did not fall as far as we thought he would, and he doesn't need this level of cleanup, I would say. I agree in the sense of even before this article came out, I have written extensively about the fact that what she did for his image actually saved him in this scandal because she was the one, by design or not, um, arranged or not, was the one who was able to show him through paparazzi photos and in her interviews what a wonderful dad he is. And so there were times when I was getting emails through the fall when this World War branch was blowing up where people would say, I've never heard of Brad Pitt being anything other than the most amazing father. Well, who do you think that came from? Mm-hmm. Um, by her, I mean Angelina Jolie. I don't think we've said her name. Um, Damn. <laughs> so. in, fact, in fact, nor does the piece, really, right? The first time yeah. they bring her up, they call her Angie. He calls her Angie. And, of course, we all know who that is. Yeah. But, like, it's, yeah, it avoids name checking. Yeah. So, I mean, I think I find it very interesting when I get emails from Brad Pitt defenders who are like, she, you know, who obviously think that Angelina Jolie totally orchestrated the whole situation and threw him under the bus and for whatever reason tried to take her kids away from him. Their defense is he's always seemed like there was never any indication that he wasn't the most um, attentive, caring, responsible father. I don't think he did any of that work. She did. So when you say you don't think that he had fallen as far as he thought he may have, part of it is that she did half the work for him. So is this a reparation or is this like, hey, you know what? I'm pretty good because I didn't fall as far as I thought I would. And now I'm just going to stomp up, like go to a next phase. Well, and that's what this article is, right? It's all redemption all the time. I got to be more. I got to be more for them. I have to show them. Uh, You know, he talks about, it's all very fable-like. They'd spend a long time on his Huckleberry Finn upbringing in Missouri. Uh, Living in caves or spending time in caves. Doesn't caves come up at some point? Yeah. He's like crawling in caves, his childhood. Yeah. He says that he spent a lot of his boyhoods playing in caves. But also like... like, Basically, he's Tarzan now. But also, like, at churches, listening to people speak in tongues, you know? Mm -hmm. He's had this sort of fabled American adulthood. He says that, actually. He says, when I screw up, it's because of my hubris. When America screws up, it's because of our hubris. He has likened himself to the arguably once greatest country in the world uh, and said, like, love me, America. I am America. I am flawed. That's brilliant. But I am you. That's really, really smart. Yeah. He's... Actually, well, he's really smart. That's the thing, That's right? a metaphor. Like, that is, you're right. That is the metaphor being drawn here, is that Brad Pitt is America. Brad Pitt is America. And you yeah. can't stop loving America no matter what because it is you and it is in you or adjacent to you in our case. And that's his argument here. You can't stop loving me because I'm here. And it's smart, as you said. It's very smart. I think Because he looks the way 
much of America thinks America looks or wants to look. I mean, let's start there on the superficial, on the package. The packaging is there. Yeah, but the packaging has always been there, right? Like, that's the interesting thing here is that Brad Pitt is good looking and always has been. He is aging well. The tears in his eyes are kind of a new touch, but like, he's always been beautiful. It's, as you say, it's how do we show the the everyman in him? Uh, there's another part uh, where he talks about, oh, it was too painful to stay at my house, so I slept on a friend's floor for a month and a half. <laughs> Excuse me. Do you know how wealthy this man is? <laughs> Do you have any idea? He could rent himself, like, yes. I don't know what, he could rent himself a hammock strung yeah. by God himself. Yes. He could Johnny Depp it. He could do, yes, he could buy himself an island to yes, nap at. Totally. If it was so required. It's actually, and many, to, to their credit, many of the readers who come to the site pointed that out to, wrote to me saying, like, he slept on a friend's floor as if. But, of course, it's there not to imply that he didn't have somewhere else to go or eight mm-hmm. spare bedrooms, but to tell you that he just wanted to get back to himself, back to his roots, right. feel the boards under your back, Make man. America great again. Make America great again. <laughs> get back to where it was before it all went wrong, before this crazy Hollywood woman got me all twisted up. Get back to those babies of mine. Like, it's all very country song. Yeah. What is the writer's responsibility here? Um, I received a very interesting tweet. I'm sorry I, um, you know, don't have the chance. I will try and find it by the time we post this. But I, re- I received a very interesting tweet from someone who wanted us to answer the question, how would this piece be different if it was written by a woman? There is, I mean, when we talk about who Brad Pitt is and who he's been for all these years, And in particular, he does have that movie star quality. When you are at the level of movie star as a Brad Pitt, as a George Clooney, as a Denzel Washington, as a Tom Cruise, let's throw Tom Cruise off that list, but you know know what I mean. That level, and you and I have talked about this, the combination that you have to have as a male movie star is guys want to be your friend Mm -hmm. and girls want to fuck you. And so my point about this, uh, that first part of the formula, the combination is... But I want to interrupt you, actually, because I think as they get older, they have to have one more thing, right? Yeah. It's guys have to want to be your friend, girls want to fuck you. That'll get you through your 30s and 40s. Sure. That gets us to, you know, I would add Clooney to your list, right? Oh, yeah. Did I not put him on the list? He's there, for sure. But when you get to this point... I also have to, like, and I'm speaking as a straight woman, the implication is also, we can also share the Sunday New York Times. You know, we also can be... Talk. Talk. Be yeah. people together. I contain yeah. multitudes, yeah. and you're just beginning to find them out. Don't sure. worry that you will be bored Depth. in your dotage, right? Yeah. It's not, you have not found out everything about me the way you have that college boyfriend of yours. Right. It's, I am just beginning to mm-hmm. unravel the incredible intellectual yep. package. Clooney's there. Denzel is there. Yep. All those are there. So when I'm reading this uh, article, this interview written by Michael Paterniti, who's an author, who's a writer, who I'm also sensing a little bit of that combination of 
hey, guys want to be your friend. And, oh, my God, yeah, and I want to be his friend now, too, because he has interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. Brad Pitt's a conversationalist. I can drop a New York Times reference or whatever, a New York reference here. Um, so my question, again, is what do you think is the difference between that kind of writing from that kind of writer and if it was written by a woman? If it was written by, like, a taffy uh, Professor Ackner? If it was written by a, a Katie Weaver? What, what would, what, I think, what more new, because this is pretty earnest, right? Oh, it's deeply earnest. Exactly. So this is a, the, the tone of this piece is pretty earnest. What would we have gotten instead? From someone who didn't kind of worship him a little bit. Well, you're assuming that a woman wouldn't kind of earnest. uh, You're assuming that a woman wouldn't kind of worship him. And I think that's really interesting because I think that's true. I think that what we are dancing around here is that every person this GQ article wins over is another person who says, well, she was lying. Mm -hmm. What a bitch. She made it all up. Right? He never says that, never anything of the kind. In fact, he says, I need to be better. I need to, you know, learn. Everything was self-inflicted. I need to learn from my mistakes. You know, who hasn't screwed up? Who hasn't made mistakes? We all have, so we all relate to that. But for every person who kind of reads this and thinks, oh, yeah, no, he's very earnest, as you say, we cast the other half, the other person, more and more in doubt. Angelina Jolie, right? The women that you listed, those writers are, they're not rookies. They would know the game that was trying to be played in in an interview like this. And I think they would be trying to... Both of whom who write for JQ. Both of whom who write for GQ. The reason why I'm bringing up those two particular female writers is because they do write for GQ. Yeah, but I think they would, I would argue that they might, would feel the obligation to test out her side, to stand in for her, or to stand in for the voices of the women who, like you and I, are questioning whether or not she's now getting kind of the short shrift in that situation. That doesn't make for the warm, fuzzy article that you're reading, right? It makes it more contentious. Sometimes that's great, uh, but if... I'm GQ, I need this article to probably be the biggest seller of the year, right? Well, yes, and you'll notice um, in terms of style of the piece, Taffy's pieces, I mean, yes, we're on a first-name basis now, but Taffy's pieces and Katie's pieces are not straight question and answer. They are, um, they give you the whole experience. Like Taffy's recent February GQ piece on Tom Hiddleston, for example, was she spent a day and night with him. And she includes a lot of his quotes, but a lot of her observations are in there. This is a straight, most of it's like, you know, obviously three paragraphs of introduction and and setup and and matcha tea and the dog, Jacques and the fire, as you mentioned. And then it's question, answer, which I hope you agree with me, had to have been negotiated. I don't know the answer to that. I don't think that you have to negotiate that because I think once you're on the record, you're on the record, right? And I would imagine that this writer comes home and calls his editor and says, yeah, we had a great rapport. We had a great time. We really got something. And 
you know, these quotes are incredible. And like, I don't know how I'm going to cut them down and make a piece out of it. And maybe I'm not going to, maybe I'm just going to run it Q and A style. I don't know if you write magazine profiles. I know some of you do. You guys email me. Uh, when do you choose which format to use or uh, do you only use this kind of a format when it's so clear? What, what you're getting at is kind of what I feel, which is that you only use this format when it's so clear you're on the same level, right? Yeah. That the questions you ask sure. are good enough to get these kinds of responses. I don't want to like, look, I don't want to sit here and disparage an interviewer given that I've asked my fair share of dumbass questions. Having said that, this is pretty straight up. What is pain? (laughs) What is pain? Emotional and physical. Uh, I mean, listen. Yeah, but you got to know your audience too. You can't ask that question to like, to to take your earlier point, you can't ask that question to Denzel Washington. He's going to order you out of the room. (laughs) Yes. Like, you can't ask that question to uh, Katy Perry. Um, you know, it's, it is really, it's very firmly calculated, right? And then there are the softballs. You don't think that was a softball? Because that was the answer where he asked about, uh, he answered about the African woman's laugh. I, I, that was ridiculous. <laughs> but I'm saying it could have gone either way. Here's what could not have gone either way. Ready? But do you worry about the narrative others have written for you? Uh, Yes. Right. What do you say? How can you not say? Here's what he actually says. What did Churchill say? He starts with, what did Churchill say? So, you know, pick up that Sunday Times. We're back on. Yeah. Uh, Also, and you know if you know, that's a straight up Hamilton ripoff. So, you know, this is where the questions are coming from. But... I don't really care about protecting the narrative. You're doing an interview in GQ about your narrative. You are yourself influencing the narrative. It's like, I don't even know how to describe this. It's like a maze crafted for only Brad Pitt to return to his former echelon uh, at the top of an already tall heap. Make Brad Pitt great again. Make Brad Pitt great again. (laughs) Um, so the show we're currently obsessed with. Yeah, it almost seems like a weird thing to say obsessed, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Yes, because it's, it's a, like, listen, the last show we were obsessed with was Big Little Lies. And when you or I or anybody talk about Big Little Lies, we said things like delicious and juicy and tantalizing and things like that. Not going to use those words here. I cannot describe The Handmaid's Tale, which is, of course, what we're talking about. In this way. No. I would say every time, every minute, every scene is unsettling. Oh, yeah. I have not had a moment of delight. No, you're not. No. I feel feel delighted that a production like this and a show this great, I feel delighted at the decisions that the show has made, but there is no delight here. You know, even though Big Little Lies was good for us, and delicious, it was still good for us. Yeah, Big Little Lies was delicious and surprised you with a bit of good for you. Yeah. You know, um, The Handmaid's Tale knows you don't deserve that. No, The Handmaid's Tale is not like... It is the Buckley's 
off mixer yes, yes. of television. It Correct. tastes terrible and it works, as they say. That was a free ad for Buckley's. We are not <laughs> sponsored by Buckley's. Well, we but we could be. Anyway, but essential, just as essential. And my God, I can't binge watch. You know, Elizabeth Moss, when asked about uh, binge watching, because people binge watch things these days, she actually said, and at the time that she gave this quote, I thought, oh, it's because you just want, you know, people just to tune in week by week. But she was like, no, no, I don't recommend binge watching. I think you should take it one episode at a time. And having now watched three episodes, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get what you mean now. I can't watch back-to-back episodes of this show. No, because you need the will to live. It takes six days to get back to the yeah. uh, to get back to the place where you think you could watch another one. So let's just backtrack just in case uh, you don't know or you have sort of avoided it. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale is, of course, uh, the it's a 10-part miniseries, I believe based on the Margaret Atwood book of the same name. And it is Elizabeth Moss. And she is really a tour de force. She's doing really incredible things. The story is told in the first person in the book. And so what they've done is had her do a lot of nonverbal scenes with voiceover over top, really, really evocative voiceover, while her face sort of tells us what's going on. I have wondered whether it's more interesting to us than to others. You and I talked about when we first read the book, each of us, Mm -hmm. at different times, uh, which, you know, for almost every Canadian kid, it happens sometime in high school, or maybe only Canadian girls. Uh, But it certainly is a a book that comes up in high school. I was university, Mm -hmm. but you're right. A young young. person. Yes, yes. And then on top of that, The Handmaid's Tale is shot in Toronto. And many of the landmarks are not obscured. Some are, of course. It's meant to be in a in a kind of a post-apocalyptic. Like, yeah, it's meant to be. Well, actually, it's meant not, to be by Harvard, no? Like, it's meant to be in New England. Yes. I mean, it's meant to take place after uh, oh, yeah. a great war, right? Correct. They're living in what they now call uh, Gilead, uh, is the new nation state or whatever it is. But it is unarguably Toronto in many, many frames, in many shots. So when you're already afraid on what is now a constant basis that rights that you thought were very basic are about to be taken away, it's extra creepier to have it happen in your own city where you walk around all the time. I assume it's the same way for the rest of you who don't live in Toronto. I'm just saying there's an extra creep factor. I think, too, um, it, like, when I read it for the first time, I was 19. Mm-hmm. And that would have been, what's my math here, Joanna? Uh, I mean, I'm, the year, what? You want me to 1972. So um, either my feminism was non existent or it was nascent. And also, I would argue that, as you just said, in that time, it wasn't under attack. That's what I think. Your feminism wasn't threatened. Your feminism was was dormant, if you will, because it didn't have to be. You didn't have to get up and shout and scream for your rights because you assumed they were there for you. So I, when I, re- I reread it a couple of weeks ago getting ready for the show, 
And my rereading of it was, oh, it, that was also just as terrifying. I mean, she has this, and it's funny. The book has its funny moments because it's Margaret Atwood. She, you know, is Margaret Atwood. And so she talks about this future society, this dystopian society, this, this nation that has come out of this brutal war. And she talks about what's gone and what has been eradicated. And there's this one line where she's like, but of course, football remains. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. And yet, I was like, not only is she prescient, because football then is not the gigantic thing that it is now. Is it not? No. Like, I mean, it grew and grew and grew in terms of money and sponsorship and interest and whatever. That it is a monster. And so she even foretold that. But you say even foretold because what's creepiest about this is that she could not have predicted when she wrote the book 30 years ago and when she uh, agreed to let it be remade uh, by, by Hulu now, she could not have known two years ago or three years ago or whenever those talks started where we would be in the world today and the kinds of things that would be happening in the U.S. with their health care, mm-hmm. uh, even as we speak. Well, I mean, two or three years ago, the seeds of it were there. I mean, like, oh. during the George Bush presidency, the seeds were there. Yeah, or okay, not more, more than seeds, I would say. Nobody thought that Donald Trump was going to no. be president until he was. Nobody thought it would get this overtly bad this soon. But Planned Parenthood was under attack, like, you know. But when's it not been under before, attack? Before, um, like, well, well into, or during the, the Bush presidency. So... Watching then, as you say, much later as an adult, what surprises you most? I think that this is not an original point, but I think that when I read it, um, when I was 19 or so, the scenario seemed so outrageous. Right. And then you, you sent me and Lorella, our other friend, we have a thread going that is years long now, a tweet. It was Emily Nussbaum's tweet yeah, about yes. the woman who is being tried or charged for criticizing Jeff Sessions. She actually uh, was told not to protest at his swearing in. And so she laughed when he was being swor- sworn in. And she is, uh, she, the penalty is uh, either a fine or a year in jail. Okay. I mean, you tell me that last year, I would have a hard time believing you. I still have a hub, like I still have a hard time believing that that's actually not a joke because it's so fucking crazy, and yet, and yet, it's real. So all of these things are so familiar now. Um, and again, this is not an original point, but this is why it's land. It's gripping us in the heart. It's it's. And in the pussy. Not to put too fine a point on it. No, but yeah. yeah. I think that what surprises me the most are things, layers, nuances that I didn't know were in the book. For example, uh, when Elizabeth Moss, as Offred, is walking around with her walking partner, Ofglen, what I didn't realize is that she and Ofglen are of a certain age relative to the other handmaids who are teenagers. They are 
more senior. They are arguably, depending on how long this new world has been in place, they're old enough to remember what it was like before. And not everybody is. I find that really effective. Mm -hmm. And of course, the other part of that that is shockingly effective is of Glenn herself. Mm -hmm. And that is Alexis Liddell. But barely, right? Barely. And what you mean by barely, I think, is you go into watching an Alexis Bledel character assuming to see a certain Alexis Bledel performance, yes? Not even a performance. What struck me first about the show, and they do a really good job of getting you in underneath those winged bonnets, uh, what struck me first about seeing Alexis Bledel on screen is that her cherubic, bright-eyed face that we know that was there on Rory Gilmore even in the revival uh, that is gone. She's a relatively young woman. I think Alexis Bledel is 35. She looks lined. She looks thin-lipped. Thin-lipped. And uh, she has no color in her face. She's she, wan. Yeah, she looks like a woman who has gone through what she has been going through. Yes. And to me, before she opened her mouth, it transformed her. And that's not just me judging her by her face, because I am, as you would say, this is not an original thought, but her performance has been shocking in the best, worst ways. I agree with you. And as you said, even before she spoke, for me, it was the eyes. Mm-hmm. She has this, this face, this, you know, it is all the things that you said. And she does have eyes that sparkle. And... I have always looked at Alexis Bledel and her eyes, and the word that comes to mind is innocence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And somehow in this performance, she's been able to wipe that out of her eyes. When I first saw her, the first scene, I was like, fuck, where did that go? This woman, this character, she's showing me that she has lived multiple lives. Um, And that's the difference. I don't know how you do that as an actor. I am not an actor, but like, That was quite extraordinary for me. I mean, one of the advantages that we have with her is you've had time to forget her. Uh, Gilmore Girls revival aside, and I think you're not there yet in your Gilmore Girls rewatch. Just starting season five. But Alexis Bedell has done something really interesting, and that is that she hasn't been on screen very much. You know, before that Gilmore Girls revival, which was more or less, you know, you can't not do that. Uh, She did Mad Men, where she met her now husband. Uh, That was years ago. And then she had their child. She is, she was the lead on a very, very popular series for many, many years. This is one of those women who does not have to work, which tells you that she's not going to go and work until it is something truly important. You think she didn't have every, like, Nicholas Sparks movie sent her way when she was young? Every sort of, uh, I almost think she, like, Diane Lane's career is waiting for her. You know, every sort of heart-rending, beautiful widow movie is there if she wants it. (laughs) Heart-rending, beautiful widow movie. And then, like, The moment you said that, because I couldn't remember the name of the movie, it was like Under the Tuscan Sun, right? I'm saying. (laughs) Right. I am sure that Alexis Bledel could like 
wallpaper her entire house in Under the Tuscan Sunscreen. <laughs> I don't even know if that's actually the name of the movie, but it sounds about right, right? It is, in fact. I think pretty close, yeah. <laughs> right. But instead, what happens is not only are you shocked by the fact that she's back, that this is the role she chose to come back to, you're shocked by, oh, she can act? She's been sitting on this all this time? You know, I don't necessarily agree that she can't act. Uh, There's always been that sort of feeling in and around, or that she could only be Rory Gilmore. But the other women in this show are really regarded for being kind of some of the best performers. Uh, Elizabeth Moss is very highly regarded. Samira Wiley is extremely highly regarded. And Alexis Bledel is more than holding her own. She is really uh, captivating when she's on the screen. Yeah, I agree with you. I quite, you know, and I I don't know, maybe this will make you angry or not, but watching her in Handmaid's Tale is kind of motivating me to get going quicker on finishing Gilmore Girls. Like, it's made me more interested. Because I don't like Rory, but Rory got a little bit more interesting towards the end of season four and something's happened. Oh, I don't know. Should I? Everybody knows. Everybody knows. So she's just cheated or she's just slept with Dean. Well, it, whatever. If you don't know what that means, then it doesn't matter. And if you do, then you know. Whatever. So she's just slept with Dean and I'm about to go into, I guess, the aftermath um, in the next season. And so, yeah, Rory just got a little bit interesting. And then I just got a little bit more or a lot more interested in Alexis Bledel. So I'm actually really looking forward to this weekend trying to get through as much Gilmore as I can. In fact, as soon as I kick you out of my house, I'm going to watch it. I think, too, just about uh, the fact that we went from, you know, a feminist uh, a feminist dystopia uh, art piece to Gilmore Girls, by the way. But we contain multitudes here at Show Your Work. But I also just think that if Alexis Bledel, it's a hard name to say, guys. Alexis Bledel, there's a lot of consonants yeah. to trip over. If she doesn't do anything again for the next 10 years... I will anticipate that next thing she does do because then I know, okay, the woman has money. She's not hurting for that. It's got to be something good to get her out of the house. I need to talk to you about some decisions on The Handmaid's Tale, though. Okay, go ahead. A lot of people have been talking about the casting and whatever. And we should say that we are in Canada as of this podcast. uh, We remain one episode behind the U.S., So much of the conversation has been about diversity, right? Mm -hmm. In the book, everybody's white because the assholes who have taken over have, like, banished people of color to, I don't know, some colony or killed them all. Like, I mean, it's basically clear that they only want white people. So obviously they couldn't do that in the TV show. So what they're saying is is that the authoritarian regime that is in place now um, prides, um, what, fertility? Mm Mm-hmm over whatever racial divide or differences that you may have. Right. And so that's been part of the conversation. In particular, though, I wanted to ask you about the casting decision to youngify Serena Joy and the Commander. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I've read a lot about that. Um, And you do this for a living, so I wanted to know. Because Serena Joy when you read the book, is like, she has arthritis. She has the cane. You know, remember? You can hear her cane coming. So the Serena Joy in the show is young. And the commander is young. -er Erger. 
I would say if the Serena Joy in the show wasn't young, you wouldn't see the dilemma so clearly. Of course, Offred should have a baby for them because they can't because they're old, but they are young. We know that they still can't have a baby, that this is sort of what has befallen this, this idea, but you want to see, it's, it makes it more random. Had things fallen a little bit differently, uh, Serena Joy and Offred might be reversed, right? It's, it's all a bit arbitrary. And in fact, they sort of nod to that in the first episode. There's the scene where all the men go into a room to discuss something very important yeah. and the door shut on her, right? Yeah. She expected to be there. She used to be there. Yeah. So she is experiencing some of the things that the handmaids are on. Which we haven't been told yet on the show. Not in so many words, yeah. but that was clear to me. That was a very clear messaging uh, that that was the in case. In an old time, she was invited to important meetings. Well, if you never had a voice. If you didn't think you were welcome, you wouldn't try to walk into the room, yeah. right? Um, I thought that was actually a real economy of visual storytelling, as they say. So, yeah, I think they are younger and should be younger so that... It feels more unfair. It feels worse. Uh, and it feels as it does when you see that other mother rip the baby away from Janine. And I say rip. I'm editorializing slightly. It was a rip. Like, um, she yeah. takes it. Uh, you know, you want to feel like it's, un- like it's stealing, like it's unfair. In fact, everybody in the show, there's a scene where um, Luke and June's baby, Hannah, is stolen in the yes. hospital. And it's another young woman doing the stealing or a woman of comparable age, right? I think it's important that they all be young so that you kind of go, okay, when the world went to shit, Mm -hmm. you went left, I went right, somebody went down, somebody went up, somebody got their eye gouged out. It's, It's chaos. That's what chaos is. And it's not because of age or of, you know, status necessarily. It's, it's just immediate. I also think the racial things that you ask about have to do with uh, a little bit to do with the time that it's set. They have updated the the book enough that, you know, there's a debit card problem. Cell phones. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that uh, the the implications of of having babies of, of any race uh, are different. And that the the desperation for children in 2016 would be a different conversation. So I didn't find that as hard to bear as one might think. So, yeah, I don't know if I can keep watching, but I have to. Yeah. I'm watching with my hands over my eyes. Like, it is really uh, horror. Um, I, I don't like what they do to you. <laughs> I don't like how it's bathed in soft light. And but meanwhile, you're seeing the most horrific, horrible things. But you know, it's it's it makes us tougher, right? Like it's it's the things that you that you watch, that you do, that you acknowledge, that you're like, I got to do this stuff uh, in order to be kind of an informed, an informed person, an informed reader. I'm impressed with people who try to make us that way, who try to get us better, right? Yeah. Uh, which is kind of the next topic, and the next story is somebody who is trying to get better under unusual circumstances. Uh, We read a great, great article about Chris Rock. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, so the Brad Pitt GQ interview was, as we said, straight up interview. So question, answer. Question, answer. The Rolling Stone profile this month on Chris Rock is your more nuanced profile. And of course, this is Chris Rock post-divorce on tour again. Um, And it's right there in the title or in the subtitle. Chris Rock wondered if he could still kill. So he's spending a year on the road finding out. And as you said, Du, when I sent you this, you were like, holy shit, we could do an entire hour, the whole show just on this article. And you're right. There's so much fucking work in here. Um, this is the profile of Chris Rock at 52, which I would never have guessed. If you had asked me, I would have said he was younger than me. He's which like is, J-Lo. It's not mathematically possible. Yeah. He's like J-Lo. They don't age. At all. Um, and he's 52. He's getting divorced after 18 years of marriage. Uh, which is very, very clearly not easy and which is comprising sort of part of the new material that he's working on, right? Uh, This is one of those really interesting things where comedians periodically, they work and work and work material and then it's really good and then they kill, as they say, like they do really, really well on stage. And then after a while, if they're great, they throw it out and try and do it again because there's no challenge in people laughing at jokes that they've been primed to laugh at that they know how to hear. Yes. And although, I mean, you do get lots of, I mean, listen, there's a lot to parse in this profile, in this article, but a lot of it is like comedy introduction, maybe for someone like me. I don't know that much about the comedy scene and how the process of the comedian is, but you get a lot of, um, information behind the scenes, nuts and bolts, building blocks, um, detail about what the comic's life is. Like there's a quote from Jerry Seinfeld where he says he does recycle. Like he brings back a joke that works um, in almost every show. So I can't remember what the breakdown was, but the idea here behind Jerry Seinfeld was like, let's say I do a new show 75% of it will be new, and 25% of it will be your greatest hits. Jerry Seinfeld adds only 20 minutes of fresh material a year, according to this writer. Okay. So the, the purpose of them saying that about Jerry Seinfeld was that Jerry was saying about Chris that every year Chris has new shit, that he starts from scratch. So he doesn't bring back the greatest hits. He just makes a new hit or... Not. Or not. He starts each tour with nothing. That's right. And I think it's really interesting, the comedian process, because actually comedians are really overt about their work uh, in a non, in a kind of not very showy way. You can be an overnight success as an actor, maybe, not really, but you can be somebody nobody knew of and then somebody everybody knows of, but you can't be an overnight comedian. And the reason is every comedian at every level 
who is a stand-up, who's not, you know, BJ Novak, goes and works the clubs. Yes. They will get in front of any microphone, yeah. every microphone, anywhere that they can get five minutes just to try shit and mm-hmm. see what works out. Mm-hmm. I know a comedian who used to work in Toronto, finish his day job, drive for two and a half hours to an open mic to do 10 minutes, yep. and then drive back home and go to work the next day at his day job because yeah. it was that important to him. And spoiler, he is now very successful. He put in the work. Well, look, I, again, the reason why this was so fascinating to me, and I read this not too long after reading um, Aziz Ansari's cover article um, in New York Magazine. You can find that at vulture.com. But Aziz talked about how when he's prepping, in particular when he prepped for Saturday Night Live, and of course he was the host right after the inauguration, he talked about um, going to nine, he what did nine to ten shows a night, or not shows, but he did like whatever, nine to ten sort of sets. Yeah, sure. Sets a night. He skipped Christmas, didn't spend Christmas with his family, and kept doing it. And then it brought me back to um, Ali Wong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. Baby Cobra? Yep. And when you read her New Yorker profile, which I guess came out last year, she also said the same thing. And she had just given birth to her baby. And her baby was a few months old. And so around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, she'd finished feeding her baby. And then she'd hit the road in L.A., and she'd go to five or six comedy clubs trying out her material. Holy fuck. And I mean, you know, the joke about Seinfeld has always been, you work 20 minutes a night, what's the rest of your life like? You know, because, yeah, they go to nine, ten clubs a night if they can get on. By the way, that's the privilege of being very, very well-known yes. and very successful. Uh, because that's the only place you can do that work. I am a writer, and as long as I have my laptop and bad posture, I can work anywhere. But a a comedian can only really write during the day and try out their stuff at night in front of a microphone, so you can't waste any time. You can't waste more than, you know, you have to be in front of people as often as you can. But if you don't do it, somebody else will. They're all doing it. They're all jumping from club to club to club to club, moving around and working around even when they're at Chris Rock's level. So, you know, if you're not willing to do it, other people will. But I'm actually really, really, because the point that you just made, or the point you made a little bit ago, was a point that I wanted to hit on too when I was reading this piece, and that is that even though you are successful, and Chris Rock is one of the most successful right now, right? The process is still the same. You still have to go to that club and fine-tune and fine-tune. Whereas, let me give you a comparison about a musician. So, at the beginning, the musician will play the dive bar, the dive bar, gets his big hit, her big hit, cuts the first album, doesn't ever have to play the dive bar again. Not in so many words, because it's not about that. I am not a musician, but actually what you're saying is really interesting, because let's play that out. Yeah. So that musician uh, makes the first album, say it's a hit, mm-hmm. right? So no, then they're playing bigger venues is what you're saying, That's right? That's right. Then they go back into the studio to 
to write more songs or record more songs and whatnot. And this is really interesting. Talk to us, music industry people. What you are saying is that even though they're a success, they're not running into yes men who will say, oh, you're amazing if the stuff is not great. Adele has talked about that, how when her stuff was not great, her record company was like, go back and write some more. You don't have it yet. But there's no substitute for a comedian. They don't get to sort of practice stuff in the privacy of of a studio or whatnot because people will tell them they're great. People will compliment them. The only people who are not going to read them kind of a false success note based on the fact that they're super famous are like randoms in a comedy bar in Poughkeepsie. I also, you know, and the other side of that is the fan. The comedy fan versus, for instance, the music fan. Like Chris Rock, or the writer talks about how Chris Rock was trying out his material one night, I think it was at the Comedy Center. Yeah, one night at the Comedy Cellar. And this was early on, it was last fall, and he had just come out of his divorce, and he was trying out his bitter divorce jokes. And the audience was quite tepid, tentative, uncomfortable. There wasn't like raucous, like, woo, laughter or anything like that. It was, and these are, of course, people who go to either see new comics trying out new material, and they go in the hopes that that night Chris Rock will show up. And that apparently happens not infrequently. Sure, or anybody, you know. Yeah. I go to comedy clubs uh, almost every time I'm in New York. Uh, that are associated with the the Amy Pollers and the Atlanta Glazers and uh, Abby Jacobsons of the world. And, you know, yeah, there's always that idea that even if they're not here, the spirit of them is this place grows those. That's right. Uh, but if they are, yeah, you might get super lucky and see one of your greats, one of your yeah. heroes. And then, but that fan still, I feel, has, I guess there's an unspoken obligation and relationship between the comic and the kind of fan who goes to those places about what your reaction is. Whereas, to go back to the analogy and the comparison of that pop star or that musician who gets the first album, who now can cut a record, who now no longer has to play dive bars, I'm sorry, but I feel like the the venues that they go to after they hit it big, the people there are there to applaud. Nobody's there with a tepid reaction. Nobody's there to be like, mm, is this song really that good? Well, even if you were, even if you were the biggest comedy stand going, you can't fake laughter. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows it. You can, you know, to kind of lean into your metaphor, once you've bought the ticket, you've bought the ticket. You know, whether you like the show or not, you bought it. You're there. But a comedian is every night testing their material to see if it will work the next night and the next night and the next night. Uh, people have bought Adele tickets, and I'm not trying to malign Adele, but she has been more honest than some about the way that this can be and the idea that not every song is a hit. But a comedy, a comic is testing out his material every single night, and it's intrinsic honesty. He knows if you're lying, you know if it's not working, and you're all kind of complicit in that club together, waiting to see if he's going to be good or not. I find that, in, like, incredible incredibly uncomfortable like to 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 know that to like as I have learned I mean and that's why I really love this Chris Rock profile I mean for someone like Sarah who used to do it um 
you know, is of the world and knows the world. And you too, you know the world, you go. I don't. But Sarah was a stand-up. That's right. A, worked stand-up. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't. I, cra- I found this article incredibly educational, like informative. I was like, I felt like I got a taste of how incredibly, again, to use that word, uncomfortable it is to be a comic all the time. But also, I think, incredibly exciting when you're there and it happens and you're laughing mm-hmm. and weeping and you never, never, never thought that you would. It just doesn't occur to you. The last time I saw a comedy show, there was a guy explaining that in the South, and I will not do his joke justice, but he was explaining that in the South, people are polite no matter how horrible they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that everything, no matter how offensive, if you say, oh, do you like whatever, this, that, or this person is greeted with, it's not my favorite. I mean, that is so unexpected coming from the dude who's telling the joke. And it is a shorthand between my husband and I. It's a, it's surprise. It's about surprise and surprising. So the high is as good as the cringe that you are feeling. Well, I mean, this is the Seinfeld quote of Chris Rock. He has an incredibly high pain tolerance because it is difficult to go out there with material that you're not sure of, Seinfeld says. To constantly go back and start over is very impressive and a little insane. Um, To me, this was just a, you know, I think that other artists in the industry, of course, at a certain point, they're all uncomfortable when they have to write new material, when they have a new role to play. I think, though, this article showed me that the comic's life and that discomfort was more visceral to me than any other artistic medium um, that I can remember in terms of how it's shown to you. I mean, it's, he's not saying this. You just get it. You're feeling it because that's what, like, God, I can't imagine like that, as he said, that pain tolerance. Well, and you know, it's, he's not just telling jokes and seeing if they work or getting a tepid response or not. Chris Brock, who was already kind of a, a risky comic, is telling jokes about his divorce, right? Like he's talking about intimate things in his life and in his family, trying to see if you can mine those for funny. Jerry Seinfeld, by his own admission, like tells funny jokes about tennis shoes. You know, it's a different level of difficulty. Yeah, I, 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 like I think that I'm going to remember probably this article, this profile all year. Well, it's such a good note to like remember that there are so many things that you don't know, that you think you know, and then when you... Yeah get a little inside scoop. You're like, I had no idea. And it doesn't mean I don't think he's a dick. Like, you know, there's, it's not, it's that too. You know, there yeah, is. Yeah, but he admits he's a dick before you can ever yes. get there. Like, it's <laughs> exactly. right there. He's a dick. But to me, I find this kind of like, it, that, I mean, this is all, if, if there was one article that we have talked about that really, really reflects what we do on this show and what we talk about, this would be it. Yeah, not just work, not just showing your work and talking about it, but being willing to be uncomfortable in its pursuit. And feeling it. Feeling that work. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of work. Well, is it or is it not? I hope this part would be pleasure. Well, yeah, it is pleasure and um, now, I guess, a little uh, pain in terms of, like, bittersweetness of it being over and <laughs> I, I want to go back. Of course, this is Hamilton. 
Uh, yeah, although you really sounded like you were gearing up to talk about, like, your loss of virginity, which I guess in a way, you know. I did. I lost my Hamilton virginity. But And by the way, thank you for all of you who you've been emailing and tweeting and saying, so what was it like when you guys went? Of course, this, you know, last weekend when we went, it was your second time, Joanna, and this was my first. And I should say that when you went to Hamilton, you had already known it backwards and forwards and off by heart. And I had like the most rudimentary knowledge. Yeah, I was a musical theater fan. I listened to the album as I do to many shows, uh, not knowing if or when I would go to the show. Uh, So yeah, I knew it kind of backwards and forwards. And you're able to do that with Hamilton because the show is what they call sung through. There are no scenes that do not appear on the soundtrack. And you knew very little. Um, And it was a conscious choice at one point, right? Not to learn that much about it. Yeah. I Listen, I knew when I was going. It's not like this was a surprise trip. I could have studied. I decided not to study. I wanted to see it without having any attachments. Um, And wow. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think that, listen, I could sit here and scream into the microphone and gush for what, the next 10 minutes, but. I mean, let's just lay the scene here. Go Uh, for it. In the, in the intermission, uh, which is a real gauntlet because there is a very serious toilet problem at the Richard Rogers Theater where women cannot get into the uh, bathrooms. It takes the entire intermission and then some. Yeah. The lineup for the bathroom goes back into the theater. Yes. Not only. That's how long it is. Back into the theater, down the front row, past Molly Ringwald's seat, (laughs) to the stage and back out again. We went on Molly Ringwald night. Well, she just happened to be there. I mean, like. Obviously, you don't know. You know that there's no Molly Ringwald night. But also, she was wearing pink. (laughs) She's allowed to wear pink, isn't she? She was basically wearing her outfit from The Breakfast Club, wasn't she? The top of it looked somewhat similar. Hi, Molly Ringwald. We love you. You do great work. Please come on our show. But you were so uncharacteristically silent. We were there in that line, desperate to pee, looking for any distraction, and you were not talking about what we had just seen or half of what we had just seen, which that's not, that's, that's unlike you. It's not unlike me, but it is very unlike you. You call me or text me every time you're watching something that I've talked about going, what happens now? This is so amazing. I didn't know it was like this. Can I look at the end? What's going to happen at the end? Can I read the back page? (laughs) Yeah, I had to yeah, it, it's so dense. I had to process and I was, I'm still processing. And my God, there was so much. Like I, it comes back to me in bits and pieces. So, you know, I'm going to need you to walk me through well, what to remember because it. What comes back to you in bits and pieces? What has been a thing that you have remembered now that your feet are back here on, on the ground? Look, what I, will always stay with me, as I said to you afterwards, what will always be the main memory for me is the ending. I, I was not expecting that the musical Hamilton would give the last word to not Hamilton, but to Eliza. Right. Eliza Hamilton, who is, of course, his wife, Eliza Schuyler, if you're following along in sort of the pop culture parlance, uh, has kind of a a notable life, and she gets to close the show. That's right. And so 
at that point, I had already seen over two hours of so much fucking work, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Like, I, I don't even know. I don't even get it. Like, all those references. And, you know, for those of you who haven't seen it yet, when you go, and Duanna gave me a teaser. She doesn't usually do these things. But what, what you said to me before we went in, because we actually had a working weekend in New York, too. We got some work done together. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> we were dreading parts of our work. We both had essays to write. And... We didn't want to get to them. And you said, before we went to the theater, you said, hey, remember. Or you said, no, no, this is what you said. You said, hey, we got a lot of work to do. And watching this show is going to make you want to work. This show is about work. And I was like, oh, okay. And then you, you see it. For those of you who are going to be lucky enough to see it, and those of you who have seen it already, you can see the work, not only in the words and the music, but you will actually watch the work happen. The work never stops. There is a stage. I don't want to spoil the stage for people who, won't, who haven't seen it yet. So there is this stage that's all work. There are, you know, the chorus. Is that what you call the... They call them the ensemble in this the case. The ensemble, yeah. the way the ensemble works, where they show up. Nobody is not working at any given moment. It is... So, so overwhelming. I just, you know, I had watched over two hours of all this work. It was so, like, all of it was brimming over. And then, and then after all the things that he's already done in addressing diversity, uh, you know, in addressing uh, equality and fairness and all that, then he gives the last word to a woman. (laughs) God, it, it was just, I did not expect that. I did not expect that Eliza... The, the last notes that we would hear at, in this musical would be out of the mouth of a woman. So he ended on, oh, by the way, the future is female. Well, th- that's how he ended. The me- ending message of Hamilton is the future is female. And he wrote this, when did he write it? Five years ago? Well, that's a funny story, actually, because he wrote it forever. Um Lin-Manuel Miranda, if you don't know, is a treasure on Twitter. Uh, Obviously, I like him any way I can get him. But in particular, on Twitter, he's a real gift. He uh, opened up a link on his phone. Like, you know those notes where you put notes on your phone and you forget about them for 10 years? He was like, oh, look, here's some lyrics that later became, uh, I think, the nonstop song from 2012. And then he tweeted today a page from... The Hamilton, which is the book about how Hamilton came to be. And it's an email from him to John Weedman, who is a musician who has written uh, and, and writer who's written on all kinds of things, half of which I don't know, one of which is Sesame Street. And he asks, because he has, this guy, John Weedman, has written on assassins and, assassins and Pacific Overtures, he asks how he can winnow down Hamilton's story. I've written three songs and I'm at a crossroads. Do you recommend writing about the sections of Hamilton's life, blah, blah, blah? Uh, And John Weedman responds with a very, very lovely, thoughtful response that you should read that will make you feel better about things. And Lynn responds with, thanks for the tacit permission to write my way into the most interesting sections of his life and find the patterns there. And then you read the dates on all this shit, and it's dated 2009. In 2009, he was trying to figure out 
how to do this. And the show opened in uh, July 2015 on Broadway. And it was at the public theater before that and blah, blah, before that, workshops, blah, blah. It's a process. It's a marathon. And I think there's so much in remembering that the people that you think are your heroes, the people who you're like, who is going to work this hard and this fast for this long? They're not doing it overnight. It takes, it takes time. So, I mean, if you're like grading me <laughs> on my Hamilton reaction and I'm telling you that I still right now, a week later, can't get over how it ended, is that wrong? Why should it be wrong? I just think maybe it's too obvious. Like there's, there's, you know, a line that I, I, I should be extracting that means more. I just fucking Eliza at the end there was just to me it was just like, okay, so you just covered everything, everything. And by everything you mean, of course, like you know the the big line that I expected you would lose your mind over. Yeah. was the immigrant line. Yeah. Immigrants comes up over and over and over in that show. You love the rap battles. I love other things about jealousy and fur and all those things. I don't know. I think this is kind of what art is. That's what that musical theater, but all kinds of art are, right? When you and I talk about a book, you say, oh, I love this. I say, I love that. And we talk about things. You can interpret and take away whatever you want. I'm only pleased that there was an, as much there as, as I thought there would be. Because you were skeptical. Yeah, I, I was skeptical and I was being a little bit you. Like, you know, fine, everybody loves this. Am I going to have to love it? What if I don't love it? Maybe I won't love it. Maybe I'll just, like, not love it on purpose. And there's a lot of pressure on you, no, no joke, or on anybody to when, yeah, when everybody loves it, there's a lot of pressure to love it, to react in the right way. And... You know, so I I don't feel like you have to react any which way, but it's exciting when it means stuff to people because I I think it can be great for almost everybody. Well, fuck, like I mean, and talk to me. I haven't read the Hamilton yet because I haven't borrowed it from you yet. But like, you know, when a cabinet meeting gets turned into a rap battle, which it occurred to me I think two nights ago, I was thinking about something else, and I was like, I got up and I was like. Oh, my God. Was he, like, recreating scenes from the West Wing? Sure. Yes, absolutely. He is an avowed. In fact, there are lots of places in that Hamilton and on Genius, which is the website that, like, parses lyrics, where people will say this is obviously a West Wing, ly- a West Wing reference, and he'll say, oh, absolutely it was. So, yeah, for sure. And what have I lost from not seeing the version that Beyonce saw? Okay, because I'll tell you what, I'll tell you why, and it's because, um, you know, Beyonce went to Hamilton, of course. Yes. And because she's Beyonce, she got to go backstage and talk to the cast, and there's this, is it a famous story? Can I call it a famous story? I I mean, you're self-selecting down to a group, but in the Venn diagram of people who know Beyonce and Hamilton, yes, it's famous. This is a famous story. So, um... Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think it was Lin-Manuel Miranda who actually tweeted about this, right? And he basically recounted the encounter between um, Beyonce and Jonathan Groff, Groff, who was the original or the first 
No, not the first King George? He was not the first King George, but I'm going to save the end of that story for a minute. Go okay. Ahead. So he was the King George of the Beyonce show. <laughs> How about that? And she went up to him and she was like, uh, you know, complimented him on his turntable, um, which is a dance, like a move that he made. And then she mimicked the move and he died. He actually expired on the spot because Beyonce complimented his dance move. Um, and so I said to you, I think that was one of the things I said to you. The only time I spoke during intermission was about Beyonce. Yes, that's right. And I said to you, um, what was the Beyonce thing that ta- she talked about in King George? And did he do the move? So did I not get the move? No. So uh, you'll notice that there was a later move. But in fact, uh, the King George that we saw was Brian Darcy James. Yeah. And in fact, Brian Darcy James was the first King George at the public theater. Uh, he played the role off-Broadway before Jonathan Groff ah. played it on Broadway. Okay. Uh, there's a very complicated history and article on Entertainment Weekly about this that we will link to to give you the history of the King Georges. It involves Taryn Killam uh, tying things around people's calves. So, you know, each King George has his own King George-ness. And, uh, you know, Brian Darcy James was clearly doing his own. Uh, but... Yeah, Beyonce saw what she saw. But it's a valid question because on the album, which I assume you are now listening to nightly and morningly, uh, you can get really used to one artist singing things a certain way, uh, used to a certain singer doing a particular cadence. And there's always that thing because so many people know it from the album before they ever go to the show of how to make it your own, how to make this role that everybody knows your own. Everybody knows they're going to be compared to the Aaron Burrs and the Angelicas and so forth who came before. Um, So to answer your question, I don't think you missed anything. Uh, Those people are iconic and exciting and originated the role, but the roles almost live and become bigger on their own. As we know, because I was tweeting with Hamilton about it, our amazing Hamilton, whose name I was... I loved our Hamilton. Uh, Donald Weber? Donald Weber Jr. Yeah. Is, I think, an alt. Javelton, as he's sometimes called, or Havilton. Javier Munoz uh, is the, was the alt for Lin-Manuel Miranda and is now the, the chief Hamilton on Broadway. Uh, and he was off on last Saturday night. Donald Weber Jr. has our hearts, was a younger, sexier Hamilton. And so everybody gets to put something exciting and new into it. Oh my God, he was sexy. And like, we're sounding like douchebags now because I think that, you know, I think you said something to me that of the people who know Hamilton, still only a small fraction have seen it. Oh yeah. Right? So more people have listened to it and read about it than have seen it. And that includes people who are not rabid musical theater fans, but who know pop culture, who have heard yes. about this, who are sick of hearing the name Lin-Manuel Miranda between this and Moana. Yes? Yes. Yes. So I will say we sound like douchebags because we now are in the small number of people who've seen it. Duanna, even smaller. You've seen it twice. I know, but that's your fault, not mine. Oh, fine, whatever. And so um, when I say that when you watch, when you're there and it's unfolding in front of you, it is so, and I keep using the word dense because it is so dense. So you have everything. You have, I I keep saying everyone's in motion and that even the stage, the way the stage is set up, simple, but there's 
this one key feature about the stage that is, God, it's genius, it's amazing. And then the lyrics and, the, you know, the messages and then the Eliza at the end. But also, I mean, on a very superficial but not really level, the costumes. I, <laughs> I mean, we were, the reason I, this triggered me was because, and again, I keep saying it comes back to me in bits and pieces. We're talking about how sexy our Hamilton was that night. Mm. And I remember how he looked in his, like, and you can see his graduation from, like, um, like a scrub, a scrub to mid-level Michael Kors to, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like he goes from a scrub, he goes from like, uh, forever 21 to, you know, um, let's say, I don't know. Like a Jack Spade. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like a Jack Spade. And then he goes to whatever, Michael Kors to Tom Ford. Okay. Like by the time he gets to Tom Ford. And it's a velvet suit. Yep. More than one, I think. I think there's more than one velvet suit. And there's involved. also a green suit. Yep. It there's is two green suits, maybe. Yeah. It no, is something special. Um, it is something special. Even his fucking trench coat. Um, even the fucking trench coat is impressive. And I, I like. I mean, it's the trench coat he wears in a pivotal scene. I think it's a cloak. Is it a cloak? If, yeah. yeah. If we're parsing this. My God. Um, I, did, so, I never thought I would see this. I never thought that I would see you uh, giddy over, over Broadway, over musical theater. I'm not going to make you eat crow, but I am going to ask, what are those of us who love musical theater or feel like it is, it has a lot to offer or it gets unfairly sort of maligned? What are we supposed to do to tell the rest of you who think it's kind of lame or cheesy or like at one point you were like, oh, this is not Oklahoma. Like it's, it's closer to, it's not, it's not what you thought it might be. And I'm not trying to paint you as a, as a yokel who didn't know either, but just in general, what is the disconnect between those who like musical theater and those who don't? I I don't know. I don't know how to answer this question. I can just tell you that I don't have a musical sensibility. Sorry, I don't have a musical theater sensibility. Like, I'll tell you the truth. When I think of musical theater before Hamilton, everybody sang at this really high tone. It was all like, (laughs) (laughs) and, you know, I never, I never think of musical theater as people who sing with gravelly Brandy Monica voices. Right. And then in Hamilton, our night, our Mariah, are there a few Mariahs? Uh, I believe that she is the current uh, Mariah Reynolds, who's also, of course, Peggy. Right. And Peggy. Uh, Yes, Mariah Reynolds. I believe her name is uh, Alicia uh, Disloriu. So that... Like, that was the Mariah that we had. That's the regular Mariah, yes? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so Mariah um, starts singing, and I'm like, oh, wait, she has a not ah, voice, but it's gravelly, it's R&B, it's, you know, and I, I have to say, I grew up in the 80s. I didn't listen to ah, music. But uh, it's, none of it is. I, I can't even make the sound that you're making, but that's not what it is. Um, or where it comes I from. I know, but that's just my, like, the image in my mind. I mean, you're not wrong in the sense that the Hamilton on top of 
every other goddamn honor that's being heaped upon it, many of which you listed at the beginning, on top of being inclusionary and diverse and, uh, you know, sort of feminist and everything else, is largely being credited for not saving Broadway because it wasn't in trouble, but certainly a revival because it's using a kind of a music uh, and bringing people who never would have been there, bringing people to these shows who didn't have an interest in the same way before. So, you know, I hear what you're saying. Look, what I appreciate most, though, about this show in particular, because you and I have talked about, well, we make a show about work, um, and we talk so much about work, and work is sexy to us. And as you forecast for me before the start of the show about Hamilton being work, this show is so many parts of work. And not just the most obvious parts, not just the scenes where Hamilton is writing furiously and like whatever, 80 essays in a week or some crazy shit like that. But there is a part where you see that he has been encouraged you see that he is being encouraged to take a break. Right. And he decides not to take a break. Right. And he pays the price, a very, very steep price for not taking a break. And so even the most work-obsessed people need to be strategic and selective about when to refill the well. That is work. Yeah. That's like a work manual. Yeah, it's about pacing yourself. That's you know. every chapter. There's a every in every book about how to like ten tips to successful people. Blah 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 blah. There's always a paragraph or a chapter about like, hey, daydream once in a while. Take a brain break. Go for a coffee. Go to the park. Go surfing. You know, like I wish you could see the mocking on her face <laughs> right now. <laughs> the the idea that go to the park is a legitimate element in a book, and yet. Your point is well taken that, uh, you know, if you don't, however cheesy those recommendations can be, you live to regret it. Well, the reason those recommendations in those books are cheesy and I gloss over them is because they're given in such general terms that it's like, you know, go for a walk in the park because if you burn out, you know, you won't be your best self. But what LMM did in this show is, hey, go for a walk in the park. Oh, wait. You're not going to go for a walk in the park? Boom. I'm going to punch you in the face and your career is over. This is how. This is exactly what's going to happen. Someone's going to come along. Your defenses are going to be down. Oh, look. Your enemies are going to use it against you. Oh, look. Once they use it against you, you won't be able to affect policy. Oh, look. Your legacy is going to be affected. Oh, great. Your legacy is affected to the point where your wife has to resurrect it. Like, to me, that is the step-by-step consequence of Look what happened that day. You said, no, nah, I'm going to spend the summer in New York instead and write 80 essays. So it's uh, about work. It's diverse. It is inclusionary. It is feminist. And it is <laughs> celebrating the power of a vacation. It has heralded the value of work-life balance to you. With No. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe in work-life balance. You know, as you know, like I'm not one of the people who talks about work-life balance. But I do believe. You're pretty close right now. No, no. What I do believe is that you have to have a work structure. And what he was saying is, here are the consequences of no work structure. And I'll tell you how, if 
we want to link it back to Laney Gossip and the work that we do, he, like out on the website, our policy for all of time since Laney Gossip started was we do not post on Saturdays and Sundays. Right. Because, yeah, there needs to be a break. I have now, <laughs> I have now found a way to link Laney Gossip and Hamilton. Yeah, it's, it's six degrees of, of <laughs> gifts that Lin-Manuel has given you. He has tacitly... My work is done. Your work is done, Joanna. I mean, essentially, what can we really say? <laughs> what are you going to do now? Are you taking a break? <laughs> um, well, are you going to go and, like, uh, listen to the soundtrack over and over and over it's again? It's Friday night. I do need a break. You know, I mean, whatever. There's some, uh, and there's, as you pointed out, there are songs of all types on that, on that track listing. Hey, but listen, if that was the essay I handed in, like, and you, you, you gave the assignment, hey, students, go see Hamilton and write about it. Grade me, please. It's not bad. That's a, that's a nice simile there. Uh, soon you're going to be ready for Hamilton 205, the mixtape. Uh, and all I have to say is you have Jill Scott singing Say No to This. You have Riz Ahmed. You have Busta Rhymes. You have all of your... 80s and 90s favorites who you thought would never give you the cred uh, or, you know, who, whose cred you would lose for seeing Hamilton celebrating it and changing it and making it awesomer still. So uh, that treat is waiting for you. And for all of you guys, uh, you know, you can tell her where to go from here uh, in, in the world where she now knows what she knows and is willing to take a break. <laughs> Um, on that note, show your work. Don't give up your shot. Try again. You are not throwing away your shot. I know, but I mean, can I paraphrase? Because it didn't work in that scenario. I mean, I guess. Yeah. It, not sure. throwing away my shot. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Work hard. Leave us comments. Press the little star buttons on the ratings. And... Back next time. Bye. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 